end stands right now, uh, Lord willing. Uh, this is our, our next to last sermon in the book of Genesis. And interestingly enough, uh, we will end up preaching 50 sermons in a 50 chapter book. Uh, don't get your hopes up. Uh, we did like what uh, almost 100 in Luke. Um, which was 24 chapters. So we doubled the sermons in half the chapters, so you never know uh, what you're going to get here at Grace Covenant Church. One thing you will get is the opportunity to stand uh, when we read God's Word. So let me ask that you do that now if you are uh, able. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, uh, we will read verses um, 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, as the one who inspired Moses to write these words, who uh, preserved, uh, informed him of these events uh, 400 some, 450 or so years later, who has kept them and preserved them now for us, uh, that you would now be at work in them and through them, by them, in our own hearts and lives that you would change us and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You've seen the t-shirt. And you probably know people who have the t-shirt. And it's one thing to have the t-shirt. It's another thing for that t-shirt to actually... Be your life motto. Uh, But the t-shirt is, I don't get mad, I get even. Uh, People that uh, you're just convinced. You've known people like this. You've known people who are given to revenge. That's their greatest joy in life. They are Inigo Montoya at the end of The Princess Bride who basically looks at the man in black and says, okay, Now that I've accomplished my revenge, he didn't say these aren't the exact words, but basically his struggle was all my life I've studied swordplay so that I could get revenge for my father's murder. Now that I've done that, I don't know what to do with my life. My whole life has been spent in search of revenge. And now that I've done it, I don't know what's left to do. You know people who don't get mad, they get even. You know people who, rather than getting angry, rather than when you've done something wrong to them, rather than talk about it, rather than have the conversation, they wait, and they plot, and they scheme, and they plan, 
and you live who knows how long uh, on pins and needles waiting for their revenge. They shoot little daggers out of their eyes. They make little comments under their breath. But the question is, is that how we should treat believers? Should that t-shirt, should I don't get mad, I get even, should that be, should we print that on our Grace Covenant Church t-shirts? Let's make that our motto. We don't get mad, we get even. Is that the way believers are supposed to treat each other? Should Christians be in the revenge business? There's the, the way to ask the question. Scripture says no. And this passage says no. And this passage tells us why that is to be the case. Why no is the correct answer. The, the passage is right after, it's between two deaths. It's right after a big giant sort of family reunion. Uh, we will, Lord willing, uh, be looking at that. I pulled this out and we're going to deal with the two deaths together uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, but there's this been, been this big sort of family reunion. All these people marched back up to Canaan to bury uh, Jacob. Jacob's now uh, in the tomb. They've returned back to Egypt. And that's where Joseph's brothers uh, get nervous. Dad's gone. We might be in big trouble. You see, they, they even admit as much in verse 15. They Now that Jacob is dead, it might be that Joseph is going to get us back. That's what verse 15 says. Now that dad's gone, Joseph maybe has been waiting for this day so that now he could pay us back. You almost get the sense that for 90 years... I guess technically I don't know how long the gap is between verse 21 and verse 22. Joseph ultimately lives 93 years in Egypt. So maybe 80, 90 years, their consciences have been eating away at them. Because literally, as soon as Jacob's dead, as soon as they're back in Egypt... The first thought they have is, we're doomed. You really get the sense that their conscience has been gnawing away at them all this time. You know what they did back when Joseph was 17. Back in Genesis 37, that's been a couple of months now, I suppose. Joseph had these dreams, and in these dreams... His brothers and his parents were bowing down before him. And he told them about these dreams. And they got angry. Of course, it didn't help that he was dad's favorite child. It didn't help that dad had given him this big, fancy, long coat, this coat of many colors, this long sleeve. You know, he, he literally wore his, his status as daddy's favorite. He literally wore it on his sleeve. He had the long sleeve coat of royalty, not the, the cut off sleeves and short robe of shepherds and farmers. His brothers didn't like that. So his brothers said, well, we need to get rid of him. Let's kill him. And ultimately they decided not to 
kill him and instead sold him as a slave to some Ishmaelites who were passing by. That's how Joseph ended up in Egypt 80, 90 years ago. They haven't forgotten. They remember all too well what they did to Joseph. And it's, it's clearly tearing them up on the inside. And surely, if they haven't forgotten, surely Joseph hasn't either. If it's eating away at us, it's got to be eating away at him. And he's just waiting for his chance to get his revenge. So they send messengers to him. This, this is a family trait. They learned it from dad when Jacob was about to face his brother Esau. What did he do? Well, he basically sent a whole bunch of people out ahead of him, including messengers out front to go and meet Esau and, and sort of, I don't know, lick their finger and sort of chest with the way the, the wind is blowing. See how Esau's feeling. Bring back a report. Prepare Esau for Jacob coming. The point is there seems to be a family pattern of um, the fear of addressing this head on. Rather than Jacob going out in front of his family and meeting Esau man to man, face to face, he sends messengers. Rather than going to Joseph themselves, they send messenger, messengers. Verse 16. Your father said to forgive us. Your father said that, that, that you need to forgive us for the things that we've done to you. I'm reminded of the Sir Walter Scott quote. Uh, oh, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. It's been their trait. And there's no evidence whatsoever of Jacob ever saying anything to anybody about make sure Joseph forgives you. It certainly appears, at least as far as Scripture tells us, they're making this up. It's a lie. Daddy never said make sure Joseph forgives you for what you've done. Jacob, as far as we can tell, Jacob never said words like that, but they decided this would carry weight if it comes from dad. Surely it would influence Joseph if these are Jacob's words. So why don't we put these words in Jacob's mouth? Never mind that they were never in his mouth to begin with. That's for them lying and uh, conniving and scheming and plotting and planning has sort of been a pattern for them, and it's one they fall into yet again here in Genesis 50. Sin and guilt have now led them further into sin. You've experienced this. You know this. One lie is almost never enough. You tell one because you're convinced, well, this will be enough to get me out of this trouble. And then when that tangled web starts to entangle you all over again, you kind of have to tell a few more to make sure that you keep your story straight, that you get out of this tangled 
web. You know the feeling. You've been down that road. One sin so quickly, so easily leads to another. Because you sinned the first time, you're sort of all of a sudden in a place where I've got to choose. Do I come clean and admit the first sin? Do I come clean and admit the first lie? Or do I keep up the story as long as I have to to get these people off my back? Joseph's brothers send a message. Dad said you should forgive us. Which as far as we can tell is a lie. The language, even the way it's the way it's sort of set up in this passage, certainly implies that they're making up the story. But notice that they at least own their guilt. Notice the the language they use in verse sixteen. Right, seventeen. Forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Okay, yeah, they may be putting words in Jacob's mouth, but the words they're putting in Jacob's mouth clearly come from them. They clearly recognize what we did to him was transgression, it was sin, it was evil. We were wicked to our younger brother. They admit their guilt. They admit that they sinned against Him. They admit that what they did was evil. But notice they also appeal the transgressions of your brothers. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your Father. They appeal to Him as a blood brother and as a brother in Christ. We're not just your brothers, but we're also servants of the God of your Father. We serve the same God, Joseph. And as brothers in Christ, as brothers in trusting in the same promises from the same God, we beg your forgiveness. And notice what Joseph does in verse 18. First, they come, verse 18, they come and actually bow down before him. They finally appear. It's, so we send the servants and, and Joseph interacts with them. And then they came, verse 18, and they bowed down to him. Does, does it echo? Is it in your mind? This isn't the first time they've bowed before Joseph. They did so back in chapter 42 and in chapter 43. However, then they thought they were bowing before an Egyptian official. This time, they know it's Joseph. They know that in this moment, they're bowing before him, fulfilling the very dreams that led to the sin and the transgression and the evil 90 years ago or 85 years, however many years ago. And they're doing it full knowledge that they're fulfilling that dream. Before, they didn't know. They thought they were bowing before just some official Egyptian. This time they know full well, this is Joseph. Oh, if I'd been Joseph. 
when I have a dream, if I have a dream that all of y'all one day bow down before me, when you do, I'd love to think, I'd love to think I'm as sanctified as Joseph. I'm pretty sure you'll know about it. I'm pretty sure I would dance and point and go, ha, there it is. You just did it. The very thing you just admitted all that guilt and wickedness and transgression for, you called it evil. You're doing it now. You said it would never happen. You tried to kill me. You tried to get rid of me to keep it from happening. Look now. I'd love to think I would do better than that. I'll apologize now. Joseph, however, has a very different reaction. In verse 17, when the messengers come and and, uh, report this this made-up message to him, look at the end of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Okay, now... We're not exactly told, you know, we don't have the verse that says, because of this. But you have to know that in Joseph's heart, in Joseph's mind, in this moment, he weeps because his brothers have missed the last 17 years completely. And again, Matthew Henry's quote comes to mind. Guilty consciences are apt to take good providences in a bad sense. 17 years, Jacob and his sons have lived in Egypt. 17 years from 130 to 147. That was Jacob's age when he moved, 147 when he died. It's been 17 years that Joseph has lived with his father and his brothers and all their households, kids and grandkids and great-grandkids in Egypt. And all this time, these 17 years in their minds adds up to, he's just been waiting for dad to die. Joseph weeps because they've completely missed it. They've completely missed how he has treated them these last 17 years. He's not just waiting for dad to die so that he can get his revenge without his father rebuking him and losing the favored son. You know what that would do to your favored son's status, right? I mean, i got to keep that as long as dad's alive. And once he's gone, then I can get you back because then he dies. I'm still his favorite son. When he dies, I don't lose the favored son status. Joseph says, they've completely misunderstood and misinterpreted all of my kindness to them for these 17 years. We've given them land to, to, to harvest, to raise their, their sheep, their cattle, their stuff on away from Pharaoh, away from the Egyptians where they can be Israelites and grow as Israelites and not be sort of infiltrated. We've given them all the best stuff. We've made sure they had land and safety and protection and food and they didn't even have to pay for it. He was just waiting to get us back. We're doomed. And Joseph says, they've completely missed my kindness. It truly was kindness to them. 
See, the truth is, Joseph had forgiven them years ago. In fact, when they first came, he told them that they had been forgiven and that that he was where he was because God had put him there. Joseph has long years and years ago forgiven them for what they've done. But how, how can that be? How could Joseph have so completely forgiven them for that wickedness? He gives us the reasons why. Joseph says to them, uh, verse uh, 19, I can't even see the verse numbers anymore. Uh, Joseph says to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Joseph's first reason for so easily and quickly forgiving and completely forgiving these brothers. Joseph's a powerful man. He's, he's the vice pharaoh of Egypt. Um, not elected to be so. He earned it. He gained the favor of Pharaoh and everyone else and, and earned his way, climbed his way to being the, the number two in command of the greatest, most powerful nation in the world. And in many cases, you have the sense that Pharaoh's going, hey, Joseph, what, what should I do today? What should I do about this? And Joseph says, I would um, do X. Okay, we'll do X. You really have the sense that the Pharaoh's, even a lot of his Pharaohing is coming from Joseph. But even Joseph recognizes he's not, for all his power in Egypt, there's one power, there's one authority, there's one right he does not have, and it's vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. I will take care of my people where there's wickedness and evil that is to be, uh, to be, to be rebuked and challenged and corrected and defeated. I will do it. In fact, we'll read in the New Testament. Don't repay evil for evil. Do good to all men. Joseph recognizes for all his authority, for all his sovereignty in Egypt, he is under some greater sovereign authority. He has no right to seek revenge against his brothers. A right understanding of the the glory and majesty of God should drive us to realize just how small and powerless we are really are. See, that's our trouble, isn't it? We, we think too highly of ourselves. When we become God of our own universe, when I become the God of my world and your world collides with mine, the problem is you were in the wrong revolution. You were supposed to be revolving around me, not me around you. That's personal conflict. That's, that's sin. That's what goes on in our lives. But a a right understanding of God's sovereignty and glory and majesty will drive us to realize just how small and powerless we really are. He understood God's sovereignty. Joseph understood God's authority in the world. He understood his place in relation to God. But notice he also understood God's providence. Verse 
As for you, you meant evil against me. Verse 20. But God meant it for good. He told them this back in chapter 45. He told them already that God put me here. God sent me ahead of you to prepare and to to save and to redeem you people, to to make sure y'all had food and to eat and you wouldn't perish during the famine. What Joseph's brothers did to him was wrong. In their hearts, they killed him. That was their desire at first. They decided that selling him into slavery would free them from the blood guilt of having actually killed him. But in their minds, they were rid of him forever. That is essentially murder. Then they went home and lied to their father with a coat dipped in not Joseph's blood, but they couldn't pull out the DNA. They couldn't call up Ancestry.com. I need a DNA kit quick. Get it here to me quick. I got to check this blood and see if it really is Joseph's. They didn't have that option. What they did was wrong. It was evil. It was sin against God and against Joseph. And they owned that. They treated him like cattle or like a piece of property just selling him into slavery. Their sin against Joseph and against their father was certainly great. And yet, God used the sinful acts of sinful men to bring about His plan His purposes to preserve the very people He had promised to preserve. Through those years of those seven years of famine. In fact, look at Joseph's language in verse 20. Yes, you're my brothers. And yes, you were sinning against me. And yes, you meant evil against me. And that was totally and completely wrong. It was unjust in every way, shape, or form. You meant evil. But notice he doesn't say, and God came after you and made good out of bad. He actually says God meant it. In other words, God wasn't absent in their evil to him. He wanted those events to set Joseph into Egypt so that he would be there to accomplish God's purposes. Their sinful acts turn out to accomplish the very things they thought they were eliminating. They thought that in their wickedness they would just get rid of him and they would never have this bow down before Joseph problem again. Meanwhile, in their wickedness and evil, they were accomplishing the very dreams that Joseph had, the plans that God had for them. God had ordained that He be in Egypt to preserve His people. Do you understand God's providence like that? Do you recognize God's work, even through difficult circumstances. Now, it's hard to read. You've heard me say this before. It's hard to read providence when you're in the middle of it. It's hard to figure out what the aim and goal and purpose is when you're in the middle of it. It's it's years after the fact when you look back and you go, oh, now I see God's hand at work in my life. But just because we can't see it and understand it doesn't mean He's not at work. Doesn't mean He's not 
accomplishing His purposes. Do you understand God's providence like that? God's involvement in His world. Joseph had already forgiven his brothers because he understood God. He understood that that vengeance belongs to him. That he's not supposed to be in the revenge business. That he's not supposed to repay evil with evil, but to do good to all men. He knew that thousands of years before Paul would write it. But he also understood that God is at work in His creation, bringing about His purposes, His plans, in His time, even through bitterness and difficulty in our lives. Joseph saw their wickedness, their evil, their sin, for which they are guilty. It doesn't absolve them of their guilt. But he saw it as God's hand at work, putting him in a place to be able to preserve Israel years down the road. How do we apply a passage like this to us? First, um, a tangent of sorts. Uh, it's connected, it's very much connected, and, and it could be its own sermon one day, and one day it probably will be. But it's, it's, worth, um, it's worth saying here in connection with this passage. When someone does wrong to you, you have two options. Someone is mean or, or wicked or evil to you. Someone sins against you. You have two options. One option is to go and speak to them about it. To confront them about their evil, their wickedness to you. The other option is to cover that sin in love. Here's the option you're not given. Let me go talk to everyone else in the room about what they've done. And and we'll spiritualize it and call it a prayer request. I've got this prayer request. And then it gives... See, that's, that's Christianese for gossip, right? Be careful. As soon as someone starts to talk about other people, your job is to say, well, nope, stop. I can't listen. I will not listen. You have to go either speak to them or cover this sin in love. Those are the only two options Scripture gives us. Joseph had long covered his brother's sins in love. Overwhelming kindness and grace and mercy to them. You're given those two options. How will you react in those kinds of situations? You know, truth is, Christ goes to the cross. And Rome and the Jewish leaders conspire together to do evil to Him. To get rid of Him. He's causing trouble. He's leading this rebellion. Tear down the temple. Rebuild it in three days. That's blasphemy. This guy has claimed to be God. We have to get rid of him. And if we kill him, then we won't have to put up with him anymore. We won't have to deal with him anymore. So they decided they would nail him to the cross. And in their minds, they're solving all of their problems. The reality is, they're accomplishing God's purposes. 
Because in that moment, yes, the seed of the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. But if he's not dead and buried in a tomb, he can't come back out of that tomb and defeat and conquer death. If Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't die and suffer for our sin, you're still in yours. Our debt hasn't been paid. They were accomplishing the very purpose for which Jesus was sent to this earth to begin with. Are they guilty? Absolutely. What they were doing, is it it evil? Is it wicked? Absolutely. Did they accomplish God's purpose in the process? Absolutely. If you know Christ as your Savior, then you know what it means to have your sins forgiven. We forgive because... God is a forgiving God. We're able to forgive because of the forgiveness we've already experienced. If you're not trusting in Christ this morning for your salvation, if He's not your only hope, both in this life and the life that is to come, this passage urges you, you can know that kind of forgiveness. Where a son says to his father, no, don't bring that up. I've paid for that. That guilt is dealt with. And we're not going to bring, we're not going to dredge up the wickedness and sin and evil of the past 90 years. Why not? Because I've already died for that. Lastly, I'm afraid that many of us, when we think about God bringing good things from the bad, I think many of us treat it more like clean up on aisle five. A mess has been made. God didn't know there was going to be a mess because, you know, God doesn't know that God knows the future. I'm not saying God doesn't know the future. But, but this is the implication of what we're saying, right? There's been a mess made and God comes in behind that mess and makes something good out of it. That's only partly true. That implies that God had no idea the mess was there. That someone had to inform him. That he didn't see it coming that he didn't know the future, that he had no idea there was going to be a mess to begin with, and that that mess has no purpose. Scripture says, Joseph tells us, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us that that mess was God's plan. Yes, it's messy. Yes, it's painful. No, we don't like going through it. No, we really don't want to have to deal with it. And far too often we don't have answers and we're just weighed down by the pain of it. But that pain and bitterness and struggle and suffering doesn't mean God says, oops, I didn't know that was coming. Where's the comfort in that? Your God is sovereign. His hand of providence is absolutely at work in this world, even when the bad, sort of difficult things of life happen. He really has, to steal the language from the the Westminster Shorter Catechism, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and He does preserve and govern all His creatures and all of their actions. Why? To bring about His purposes. Joseph forgives his brothers 
Because He knows that kind of forgiveness. And because He trusts in a God who rules and reigns over everything. Because He knows He's not in the place of God. He's God-like in Egypt, but He's not in the place of God. And because God's revealed will tells Him that He's there to accomplish God's purposes. Can you trust God's plan even in the midst of difficult providences? This passage says, run to Him. He's actually in control. The difficulty and pain pain doesn't disprove Him. It gives you a place to go in the midst of it all. There be comforted. There find hope. There find the arms of a Father who loves you perfectly and is at work. And yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult. But this passage says, trust in Him to accomplish His purposes, trust in His revealed will, even in the midst of difficulty. Pray with me.